Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to The Nuclear View. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, and I am very pleased to have with me today Curtis McGiffin, Bill Murphy, Jim Petrosky, and Christine Leah, all from the National Institutes for Deterrence Studies. And of course, this is The Nuclear View, a podcast of NIDS. So today we're going to talk about the growing nuclear arsenal of the People's Republic of China. There was a recent article in Grid News that gave an outstanding laydown of where China began with its nuclear program, where they, of course, detonated their first nuclear weapon in 1964 at Lop Noor out in Xinjiang province. And for most of the last 60 years, uh, China's had about two to 300 nuclear weapons. And then here recently, uh, we, we found out that the Chinese nuclear arsenal grew to about 400 And then there's an expectation that it will grow to approximately 1,500 nuclear weapons uh, over the next decade. And then it made news last summer, about a year or so ago, that they found 100 new ICBM silos uh, in different places uh, around China. So there's this belief that China is rapidly expanding its arsenal. And there is a, a debate right now over whether this is something to be concerned about for the United States. Is nuclear parity uh, between the United States and Russia and then between the United States and China, which is, like I said, expected to have about 1,500 by 2035-ish, is that something to be concerned with? So I now turn it over to our very special guest, Christine Leah, a fellow of NIDS, to ask you, Christine, should the United States be concerned about this growth? Thank you so much, Adam. Uh, So I look at this from the perspective of U.S. extended deterrence and how allies in the Asia-Pacific are viewing developments, because they look very closely at numbers. And I remember even 10 years ago, when there were discussions around START and the the possibility that the U.S. might go below 1,500, Uh, Japan, South Korea, and Australia were were quite concerned uh, because the bedrock of extended deterrence in the region is nuclear deterrence, not conventional military power. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how the discussions go, especially now that we have this tripolar strategic competition which is unprecedented uh, in the nuclear age, and especially for the U.S., there's going to be some challenges. Yeah, you make a great point. And I wonder, Curtis, as you think about it, this problem or this potential problem, do you see it similar to Christine or do you see other elements that we need to consider? Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. It's wonderful to have Christine here with us today as well as the rest of my colleagues. Hey, let me say this. You know, we are talking strategic warheads, right? So we we really only know just how many we, we think we know how many they have. We really don't. They're very 
um, very opaque in their in their uh, discussion of of Chinese nuclear weapons. The thing to think about here is is uh, you know is it really fifteen hundred? Where are they going? The potential of two hundred and thirty new missile silos in the Gobi Desert. Uh, and putting, you know, the kinds of weapons, the DF-41 weapon system in there with a potential 10 Merving warheads. Well, you do the math. We could be looking at greater uh, upwards of 3,000 warheads um, at some point beyond 2035. And we have to be thinking about what that threat is in the future, even beyond 2035, because the work we're doing now uh, in modernization and whether we keep Slickham or cancel Slickham, keep the B-83 or cancel the B-83 or whatever comes coming down the pike, the weapons we are building today is what we are going to use to, to strategically deter China and Russia in the future, in the 2035-2040 timeframe. And this matters. This matters not only to our own security, but to those of our allies in the, uh, the Indo-Pacific and I think uh, Christine is absolutely right. Not only do the adversaries look at numbers, so do the allies. And unfortunately, um, we here in the U.S. seem to be less concerned with the numbers. But I think it matters uh, to the to the to the non-Americans, if you will, in the world who are are, are looking at our nuclear deterrence to provide the global stability over the next thirty years as it has in the past 60. Yeah, that's a great point. What do you think from a technical perspective, uh, Jim? I mean, you're our resident engineer. Are there technical elements, engineering aspects of this that we need to be thinking about? Well, thanks, Adam. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things. I want to go back a little bit to what Curtis said. Um, it, you know, the numbers matter because our whole strategic deterrence is based on uh, a number strategy in which, you know, one, uh, you know, one launch can be, you know, thwarted with a return launch. And so therefore uh, you have to weigh out the risk of, of taking a first strike or making a first strike from a strategic standpoint, you know, putting all the tactical uh, nuclear weapon concepts aside. So the, the real question is, is China and Russia join forces or, take advantage of any kind of strike from one or the other that would leave uh, us in a sort of a vulnerable position. If we've developed our deterrent strategy, that direction um, from the, from the technical standpoint, I, I find it interesting. And uh, as you look at the U S modernization effort, and there was a lot of banter back and forth about why we don't go back to testing and why, why we, uh, uh, how we assess the reliability of our nuclear weapons. And I think, our national labs do an incredible job of, uh, of testing and evaluating and qualifying our nuclear weapons. But you may notice that no one's wringing their hands over China developing new weapons, but not doing testing. So they seem to have taken a similar strategy and a similar methodology to the advancement of their new weapons um, in, that, in that way. So I think both of those pieces go together to to sort of cause an alarm as to what's going on in China. What what's the end game? Is the end game to simply become a military might to join forces with Russia uh, to to put U.S. In the, on the side or go it alone? But you know, all three of those are part of the strategy. I'd be interested what Christine, being in region, 
uh, thinks about that because it's really that power projection in that region that becomes of, of great interest. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Uh, so as someone who's lived and worked in the Asia Pacific for quite some time, this is one of the big reasons the posture review is such a confusing document. I read it and I'm like, yes, we are entering a dark new era, but yet the way the document reads, it's like, well, we're not going to reinforce the role of nuclear weapons in, de in deterrence. And from an allied perspective, that's, that's very confusing. Christine, yeah, did you see our, uh, our, our last uh, podcast that we discussed the, or two, two podcasts ago, we discussed the mm. NPR and some of the shortfalls yep. there and yep. they, and they were quite interesting uh, that you bring that up. Yeah, absolutely. No, of course I, I listened in. Um, it's, it seems to ignore, and, and I think this is historically unsurprising since the end of the cold war, there's been a lot of intellectual confusion about the role of nuclear weapons you know, should, should we have them at all sort of thing? And so the arms control and disarmament advocates sort of dominated the discussion. But now, like, Geopolitics 101 has come back and we need to be having serious discussions, the, the, the concepts of nuclear strategy in deterrence, because whether we like it or not, these weapons are not going away and we might as well use them sensibly. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. So, Bill, you've been quiet thus far. What say you on this topic? Well, I kind of go back to a little bit of what Curtis was talking about as well when he brought up, I think, the word, you know, the extended deterrence. So we have both aspects we have to look at, both as Russia and China's uh, arsenals are not only being uh, grown in China's case or what is being uh, reported open source, but being modernized in Russia's case. So the deterrence and, and what you talk about with capability times will times communication, we, we need to be concerned about that. But at the same time, and, and uh, Christine's talked a little bit about this as well, and I'd, I'd be uh, interested more on her part, is the extended deterrence. She said, you know, the NPR was complicated or, or, or sent, I think, missed messages. But December 16th uh, is when Japan Japan put out their most recent national security strategy. When they did this about nine or 10 years ago in 2013, they had North Korea was their greatest security concern at the time. The new one that came out just here the last couple of weeks on December 16th, you know, our own Department of State, uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken went out and, and they welcomed this new security strategy. But in that strategy, they come out and they say the, the greatest security challenge now is going to be China. And so they've at least identified that. So as we're talking, if Christine is confused about what our NPR is saying, I'm curious to what our other allies might be thinking over there as well as we're trying to not only deter, but provide extended deterrence uh, to make sure we're not looking at counterproliferation issues in the future. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, it's, it's one of the interesting things is if you've read, so I've you know, I have a, a five mile run that I do mostly walk, but, uh, and I'm, I listen to audio books. And so I'm listening to, uh, Rob, uh, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden he, he wrote uh, stealth wars, but he's got a new book out. Um, Spalding speedo Spalding, uh, General Spaulding, he's got a new book out, and essentially the book is a discussion of unrestricted warfare, the 1999 document that sort of gave the West a view into uh, Chinese thinking. And 
it along with Michael Pillsbury's book, the uh, the hundred year war, hundred year marathon, uh, goes into a lot of detail about how the Chinese have played this role that is pretty traditional with Chinese strategic thinking that dates back to Sun Tzu and the Warring States period. And that you know, when you are weaker, you play this this submissive role, and so they they played themselves as the Soviet Union's little brother all the while they were building their capabilities, building their economy such that once they finally are a peer of the United States, who after 1991, after the Gulf War, they clearly saw us with the Soviet Union's collapse as their adversary. And I wonder now is this, this effort to dramatically grow their nuclear arsenal, this effort to very clearly dominate East Asia, the South China Sea. Is this finally where they say, okay, this idea that we're going to show that we're going to show that, you know, this perception of weakness that we are, we, we mean no harm that they've now said, now said, okay, we think we're at a point where we can assert ourselves and assert our position in the international system and that this growth, this dramatic growth of of their nuclear arsenal, Japan's recognition of that, our recognition of that is finally sort of a an understanding of what their long-term strategy has been. And I wonder if that's what we're seeing. If I Curtis, could jump in. Christine, go for it. Yeah. Um, so if we're looking at this historically, this, this all makes sense. And if I'm, if I'm looking at the world from Beijing, uh, I, it makes sense historically and it's, it's China has dominated the region historically. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different way of thinking. Uh, it's not a Western, I I don't think China was ever satisfied with the Western led international order. And to some extent, that's a legitimate view. I mean, culturally, they have a... I can't remember what the name of the system that used to be um, uh, back a thousand years ago. But China China believes it, rightly or wrongly, that it should be the main player in the region, and it wants the U.S. out. Yeah, I mean, it's a hierarchical system. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. The Chinese emperor had the mandate of heaven... Everybody yeah. else, you know, I mean, we have this, you know, the concept of kowtowing. I mean, yes, that that's is it. how you, that's how you would approach the emperor. And <laughs> this idea that it's this hierarchical culture, they're at the center, everybody else is, you know, pays tribute. And, mm. and it's not this liberal Western order. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And it's the reason we see countries like Cambodia, Laos, uh, not, creating such a fuss with all the military activity in the South China Sea. And by the way, why is it called a South China Sea? Can we call it the West Philippine Sea? Yeah. <laughs> How about yeah. the Northern Australian Sea? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, Christine, Jim. Uh, this is Jim, Jim Petrosky. Yeah, yeah, so in the context of your last comment, though, um, Maybe maybe you can comment on the change in the in the Chinese sort of 
uh, military strategy recently, I was taken aback early on when you talked about deterrence uh, from from your view uh, down under in that nuclear is everything. You don't really look at the conventional side from a, con- a deterrence standpoint. But at least from, from my military history knowledge, China has always been a strong or at least a large uh, conventional force. And that always was the, the concern that, you know, the, you know, the comments about, you know, the, the Chinese, you know, having massive number of people so they could mass military conventional equipment in, in areas and basically take over regions. I'm an army guy, so I think of it in those terms. Yet your comment earlier was that the, the, the new strategy in China is to place more in the area of nuclear, almost to, you know, to reach out worldwide versus uh, regional fighting. Can you, can you comment on that? Sure. Um, I don't think, honestly, I don't think China wants to be the global superpower. I don't think it has those ambitions. Um, it does want global influence, but I wouldn't say a military, you know, the dominant global military power. Um, but I do think, and just looking at what's going on, that it, it, it wants to be the regional hegemon. U.S. needs to get out as far as it's concerned. Uh, and that's why we have all these now beyond mili- uh, island building in the Pacific. You've got all these influence activities, uh, economic coercion, you know, the debt trap diplomacy going on in the Pacific islands, which is very concerning as well. Uh, so they have they have a much broader view of how to shape and influence. Uh, the issue, one of the issues that came up for me in the uh, national security strategy was this concept of integrated deterrence, sort of using all elements of national power. And that's creating confusion in the allied space because now you mix up all elements of national power. So suddenly building infrastructure is deterrence. Uh, no, deterrence is about threatening punishment, not that's, that's soft power. Infrastructure is soft power. So it, overall, I think the U.S. messaging is quite mixed, um, and we don't have time for that. China's serious about dominating the region. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. And it, it goes back to uh, an important part in the article, and that's the discussion of China's no-first-use policy, in which the Chinese have repeatedly stated that they will not use nuclear weapons first, but I wonder with, you know, they've, they've had an active defense policy as well. And that active defense policy, uh, they use language very differently than, than we do for, you know, for us deterrence has the same meaning in, in Chinese as, as coercion. And so you know, like active defense, for example, for them, active defense can mean what we would consider an offensive action. It could be preemption. And mm-hmm. for them, that's that's defensive. That's active defense. For us, that's a that's a preemptive act of war. And mm-hmm. so we I, I wonder, I often wonder how how much are we actually talking past each other because we we're really not speaking the same language. And I don't mean that in a sense of you know, literally that we're not speaking the same language, but that we have different concepts for the same words like deterrence versus coercion, you know, defense versus preemption. And I wonder how, you know, how problematic is that? And, and also for, 
for this is sort of for Murph, and and that is you know they've the Chinese have largely focused on ballistic missiles, ICBMs, and you know short, medium, intermediate range ballistic missiles, and I wonder how problematic. And maybe Jim, you can jump in as well as an engineer with a heavily ballistic missile focused um, nuclear force. How does that change the way that we have to think about the Chinese well, use of Adam, nuclear weapons? Adam, this is Murph here. So I think part of it is it's the ballistic you have to worry because it's intermediate, at least if you read the open source stuff, intermediate stuff that'll cover the you know the nine dash line and out through Taiwan and some of those sort of things. So that that's looking at some of the extended deterrence. But on the deterrence side, what what's concerning is you read the the newest uh, uh, Intel reporting that just came out. It, it talks about how there are very they're getting into full operation capability of of a triad. So their sub forces, their bomber forces with cruise missiles and their uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that that Curtis talked about earlier with those three missile fields that have been uh, identified via open source. But what I also want to do is just uh, roll back to what Christine talked a little bit on the integrated deterrence and the soft power. I think, Christine, part of that goes back back in the day. The the our joint staff here in the U.S. created what was called the deterrence operation joint operating concept. That's a, a nice, easy phrase. The DOJOC for short. But in there, there was ways to three different ways to kind of get to the end of deterrence uh, by affecting the, the adversary's decision calculus. And what I wanted to just make sure that Christine was aware from a U.S. perspective, it's it was deny benefits, impose costs, but also part of that in one of the three ways was to encourage adversary restraint. And so that's part of, I think, of where some of this integrated deterrence, where they're looking at using what, Christine, I think you refer to as soft power, is encouraging the adversary restraint by doing some of the, the carrots versus the sticks. And, and so that's at least some of the sort of conversation we had back in the day uh, you know, with the DOJOC and some of the stuff that, that's going on as well as we go forth. But, Adam, going back to your, your question, though, I think it's more concerning on the, the U.S. perspective looking at the, the triad and what they're bringing on line, uh, at least according to open source. Yeah. I mean, I wonder about, I see, see, here's the, one of the issues that I have. So if you look at Chinese bombers, the Chinese have really never mastered the, the jet engine. They're not very good at it. They've tried to steal everybody's technology and build their own and they still haven't mastered it. They, when it comes to submarines, they can build diesel submarines. Okay. But their submarines, even their best gens, uh, the gen class, are loud. Uh, they haven't mastered the, you know, the the nuclear propul uh, propulsion uh, yet. So they don't have like a really good boomer fleet, um, and we don't really know quite how good their submarine launch ballistic missiles are. So they are still really, they, maybe they've got a tentative triad, but they're still real, really heavily relying on ICBMs and ballistic missiles. And the difference is you can't signal with them. And so whereas we use bombers quite often to signal, uh, they're not going to be able to signal the way that we do. You're going to see ballistic missiles flying and they can't, you know, they don't have the ability to turn them around. And so I wonder, as they build a, a pure nuclear force with us, 
and they don't really have the same ability to signal, how does that sort of shape deterrence? Christine, well, let me, Curtis? Yeah, let, let me jump in here. Uh, I want to address a couple of things here. Um, so let me go backwards. It's a great question, Adam, um, but it's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> going back to Murph, Murph's, Murph's extremely accurate descriptions of deterrence through the Dojok and other, these are great, you know, Pentagon platitudes of gentlemanly language. <laughs> you know, back in 1994, the, the DOD dictionary's definition of deterrence was the prevention of action by fear of consequences. A state of mind brought about by the existence of a credible threat of unacceptable counteraction. That was the old definition. And deterrence is based on fear. And what the Chinese are trying to do is project fear as well, because they know that that's how it works. And so uh, by we have to look at why is it that they're creating all of this capability as uh, as several have noted that what is what is the risk? What is the threat to them? And the answer is there really isn't any threat to them. They have a 700-mile desert to the west. They have an, a, a, a full you know coastline on the east, a mountainous south, and a pacified north. There's no threat to them. It is purely a desire to assert itself as a hegemon. And, and I agree with Christine that they're not interest, necessarily interested in being a global superpower, but they definitely want the power to coerce everyone else who might get in the way of their aspirations. And that's what deterrence by our adversaries is today. We say uh, in China or the deterrence doctrine of Putin, it their deterrence is about um, deterring us or the West from getting in the way of their revanchist goals. That's what it is. It isn't about deterring war. It's about deterring um, um, our intervention. Yeah. And so yeah. we have to be aware of that. We have to acknowledge that. And our allies have to be aware of that. But more importantly, we have to realize uh, from the West that China is um, is not interested in being a partner in anything. You know, Nadia Shadlow wrote a great article in the in 2020 called "The End of the American Illusion," where she points out um, how uh, China utilized um, the the privilege of the Western um, um, democracies and capitalism, like World Trade Organization and things like that not to do what we hope they do, which is assimilate and become more westernized. It was to grow themselves and become the superpower that they were. While everyone in the world wants to acknowledge them as a superpower in the sense of their nuclear strength, their military strength, their economic strength, etc., we still classify China both in the in the in the financial world and in the climate change world as an emerging country. So they get all of these privileges that they're forgiven for the carbon-based pollution that they produce, and they're given special dispensation uh, in the economic growth world, uh, yet they are the second largest economy uh, in the world. And if you add in purchase power parity, they may well be the largest. And so these are, are problems that, dare I say, we have created. And so um, our effort to, to assimilate China into the Western thought process has backfired. And one day we'll, re we'll recognize that, but it will be too late. We can't continue to trade with an adversary 
who really is more interested in in usurping our position, not maintaining a status quo and being a partner with it. Yeah, well said, Curtis. Well said, Jim. Did you have any thoughts on uh, this this discussion we've just had? Yes, Adam. Thank you. Um, yeah, and and to to Curtis's comments, it, it's why I used the word threat much earlier. Uh, even you know, sometimes I think we get into what uh, I, I've learned from the Air Command Staff College um, is this concept of meism, where we look at other countries and we say, "Well, this is what we would do." But as Curtis states, I don't think that partnering with the U.S. or becoming a a world domination or a, a world superpower is really their their end game. I think the end game and just does become con- very very much confusing when you look at the ballistic missile development is to simply make that threat and make that threat known and then they have freedom of movement. And the one technology issue related to that um that whether it's whether it's what they want to do or not is uh, is they've built their technology mostly around electronics, electronic and sensor capabilities more so than than the conventional types of you know aircraft etc that we have. And almost everything that China has and has developed, at least in the open literature, has been electronically advanced, modernized very quickly, and that's where they've placed uh, their eggs in their basket and in all of their deterrent strategy, in my view. Yeah, well said. Let me read uh, a quote from Jeffrey Lewis. I I actually think this was prescient. It's from the article we've been discussing. He says, it's not that China's security situation got a lot worse. China's richer and stronger than it ever has been in the past. You have a Chinese government that has a different view of things. They are coming to talk about nuclear weapons in much the way that we and Russia do. And I think Lewis is, you know, is is probably right about that. And as we we look to the years and decades ahead, we should probably expect China to be just as assertive as the United States or Russia. Any final thoughts before we uh, wrap this up? Because we are out of time. But if, uh, Adam, you know, I do, and then and I'll and then I'll, I'll let I'm interested in Christine's thought on this. <laughs> so, China's no first use policy. You mentioned it, uh, and America has been flirting with a no first use policy uh, or a a sole purpose policy. And I'd be interested in what uh, Christine's thoughts would be on that. Um, but uh, the question you have to ask is, do you believe it? Uh, with regard to China, they've just recently reasserted that uh, that their no first use policy stands. Yet they've made very vocal threats of nuclear attack on, uh, with regard to Japan, even referring um, to uh, to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, um, uh, detonations uh, in their in their threats. So, in a sense, when we say that, will they use nuclear weapons against? an adversary first, when you threaten to use a nuclear weapon, you are in a sense using that nuclear weapon. Sure. Uh, you know, we always say in deterrence, our nuclear weapons are used every day. They're used to deter. Well, if you use them to threaten and you make threats with them, you're using them every day. 
So we have to realize that they are, they're building a power of coercion and no first use policies be damned when it comes time uh, for them to uh, chase national interests as any nation would. What say you, Christine? Thank you, Curtis. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of people uh, don't get. You don't have to detonate nuclear weapons to use them. They are an instrument of geopolitical ordering. And what we've seen now with Taiwan, uh, Chinese military threats have been normalized. Uh, it, and from an allied perspective, that's that's not good at all. There, We don't have strategic warning time anymore. We don't, at least Australia, doesn't have the 10-year strategic warning time that it has relied upon. Uh, so we're in this confusing situation where it, it, it's it's entirely expected that China will attack Taiwan. Uh, regarding no first use, yeah, I don't buy it either. Uh, but at least from an allied perspective and just reading public documents from Japan and Australia, they don't want the US to declare sole purpose or no first use. Thanks. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, it looks like we are out of time. I want to thank... Curtis McGiffin, Bill Murphy, Christine Leah, and Jim Petrosky for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View. And we want to thank you, the listeners, and hope that you uh, find this useful and that you'll join us on the next episode. 